Good afternoon, everyone. So you are here to hear from a stellar panel for a program called Police Reform and Accountability Webinar. That is not what you are trying to see. You are in the wrong place because we will be talking about police work here. Uh, but I hope that you're in the right place. I hope that this is something that each of you have been following or are just motivated to learn more about. And I cannot imagine that you could be learning from a panel with more experts than you have today. So I wanna kick it off just by introducing those that you will be hearing from today. Um, and then I wanna share a little bit more about why we thought this was a really critical conversation to be having and our thanks to the BBA for hosting this conversation. So in alphabetical order here, we have four panelists. Amanda Hainsworth is a senior legal advisor to the current MA Massachusetts AG, uh, Andrea Campbell. Before that, Amanda was the Assistant Attorney General and Managing Attorney of the AG's Civil Rights Division. Amanda has also worked as a white-collar criminal defense attorney at Foley Hoag and served as a criminal prosecutor in the Norfolk County DA's office. So we're happy to have Amanda with us today. Next, I have with us Michelle Leung. She's an Assistant U.S. Attorney in the Civil Rights Unit of the U.S. Attorney's Office in the District of Massachusetts. Michelle previously worked for the Office of the Massachusetts AG in the Civil Rights Division as well, and the Department of Justice's Civil Rights Division, where she focused on police misconduct matters. You guys are going to hear some themes today with our panelists. Our experts all come from heavy government backgrounds, but we're happy to have them and happy to hear their expertise. Uh, next, we have Natasha Tidwell, who's currently a partner of the White Collar and Government Investigation Section at Mintz. Before entering private practice, Natasha was a federal prosecutor, both in the Public Integrity Section of the DOJ and in the U.S. Attorney's Office here in Boston. Prior to that, she was a police officer in Cambridge, so comes with a very unique set of experience and a lens that we are really looking forward to hearing from today. And last but certainly not least is Randall Rabbits the current general counsel for the Massachusetts Peace Officers Standards and Training. You might know it as the Post Commission. Before joining the Post Commission, Mr. Rabbits or Randy was an assistant attorney general and the chief of the appeals division in the criminal bureau of the Massachusetts attorney general's office. So if you can't tell already, we have some heavy hitters here to learn from, and I'm looking forward to being with them today. So I just want to say very quickly something to set the stage. Again, whether you come to this topic with a lot of knowledge or just a curiosity to learn more, whether there was an awakening for you in the midst of the national protest in response to the murder of George Floyd, whether or not this is your long career that you've been engaging in police misconduct work so far, what I hope we can agree upon is that unfortunately, the need for reform in this particular space is not isolated. There's not one name, there's not one incident, there's not one situation that gives rise to why we're here today to talk about reform. And to be quite honest, there's not one tool in our tool belt that's gonna do it for us. We need everything. We need all the tools at our disposal to really think through how do we address the institutional and the cultural failures? Because that's how I see them personally. There are systemic failures here that have allowed individuals to be exposed to harm. Disproportionately, that's black and brown folks who are three times more likely to encounter a fatal interaction with police. But to be quite honest, it's all of us and it's the police officers themselves. We need to be thinking through all of those cultural systemic changes about how we make this a better space for everyone. And so I'm looking forward to having this conversation today. As many of you know, Massachusetts, like others, um, underwent a process for bringing in a new state bill 
to address some of the mechanisms of police reform. And so I'd like Randy to just sort of start telling us a little bit about that legislation. What do we need to do, need to know, excuse me, to engage in this conversation? Sure, thank you. Uh, well, the 2020 legislation was entitled an act relative to justice, equity, and accountability in law enforcement in the Commonwealth. And there were a lot of key actors who were involved in the process. Some of them included the Black and Latino Legislative Caucus, uh, Senators William Brownsberger and Sonia Chang-Diaz, Representatives Claire Cronin and Carlos Gonzalez, and Governor Charlie Baker. And listening to the, the floor debates, and looking at the, the history of the enactment of the legislation, one can see a lot of themes um, and a balancing of those themes and different objectives and different principles. And we in our commission, we remain mindful of all of them. Uh, but one of the themes was supporting law enforcement. Uh, the sponsors said on the floor that the service and sacrifices of officers are appreciated and the overwhelming majority of them have good motivations and do their jobs well and that they could benefit from better training and consistent high standards and more collection and dissemination of information, and that those steps could help them be more effective and can help agencies hire better officers and generate more confidence in law enforcement and keep the public safe. But at the same time, they said that there's a small percentage uh, of officers who have engaged in misconduct, even to the point of demeaning or injuring or even killing members of the public and that those officers destroy trust between law enforcement and communities. They harm their fellow officers and they render the public less safe. Communities of color, they said, have suffered in particular and more must be done to further racial justice. And there's a lot of references to the murder of George Floyd and surrounding events that put that in stark relief. They talked about addressing particular forms of conduct, such as uh, the use of force, uh, the use of, of specific devices uh, in the course of uh, making arrests and enforcing laws, uh, failures to intervene when officers witness conduct by other officers, uh, conduct reflecting bias or dishonesty. Those are things that they, that they highlighted as being particularly concerned about. Another theme of theirs was that there need to be consequences when we witness conduct like this and when it's found to have occurred but that those consequences should follow fair adjudications. They said when officers are accused, they should be judged through procedures that are just and protective of their rights. But if they are found to have committed misconduct, there need to be mechanisms to suspend them, to order them to be re retrained, and even to remove them from the law enforcement profession when appropriate. The legislators also addressed uh, youth interactions with the criminal justice system. There are a lot of references to the school to prison pipeline and, and how more must be done to prevent young people from winding up in the criminal justice system. And so when they uh, sat down to, to write and, and vote on their legislation, I think what we can see in this, this very large legislative package that was ultimately signed into law on the last day of 2020 really five categories of provisions. The first one I think of as regulating the conduct of law enforcement officers. So what they can do, what they can't do, what they must do. Uh, and within that category, we see provisions dealing with the use of force and dangerous techniques saying that uh, force shall not be used unless de-escalation has been tried or failed or it's not feasible. And, and unless it's necessary and proportionate, the deadly force uh, shall not be used unless there's also imminent harm, that there are certain 
certain practices that should never be employed, like chokeholds, and certain crowd control measures should only be used in, in certain situations. Uh, that officers, as I said, have a duty to intervene and that there needs to be more reporting regarding uses of force. Uh, they also, within this, this category of, of regulating conduct, they restricted the use of facial recognition technology, uh, limited the exchange of information between officers and schools regarding students, uh, banned racial profiling, prohibited officers from having sexual relations with those in custody, and restricted the use of no-knock warrants. Another category is providing for better preparation and oversight of law enforcement per personnel. So they established qualifications for cadets and officers and the state police colonel. They required new forms of training, new forms of discipline. They revised the state school resource officer program to provide for more training and oversight. And just by way of background, that program aims to promote school safety while respecting the distinctness of the school environment. And uh, responsibilities are divided among the public safety and education establishments, uh, our agency, a sister agency that we work with that I'll talk about in a minute, and local police departments and school districts. Um, and also in this within this category, they required more forms of data collection and reporting. Another category was that they, they facilitated the public's ability to obtain information and relief. In other words, giving them some added tools like enhance access to information about police officers and they facilitated the securing of civil rights judgments against officers in certain situations, and they made it easier to have criminal records expunged. Another category, another main area of what the legislature did was to create a series of special commissions on issues that they're concerned about. So the status of African-Americans, Latinos and Latinas, persons with disabilities, black men and boys, uh, school resource officers, correction officers and juvenile detention officers, facial recognition technology, emergency hospitalizations for mental illness, civil service and personnel administration, a law enforcement cadet program, structural racism and correction, parole, probation, and qualified immunity. These are, those are all topics that uh, are to be studied further and the subject of proposals by special commissions. And then, and then finally, they created a permanent new agency, the agency that I work for, uh, that is charged with overseeing law enforcement statewide. And that's, again, the Massachusetts Peace Officer Standards and Training Commission, or the Post Commission. And they wanted that agency to be given a broad range of authority with respect to officers and law enforcement agencies, and for it to be independent from any branch of government. They wanted it to have a civilian majority, different from what we see in other states. And they wanted it to ultimately decided with uh, some input from the governor, for it to collaborate with another agency, the Municipal Police Training Committee, which is an existing uh, agency that has been under the governor and EOPS, Executive Office of Public Safety and Security, and continues to be under that line. They wanted us to, to work closely with that agency in a lot of different ways, and we have been. Um, so, so now I think I will move from there, talking about the 2020 legislation generally to, to narrow in on that last category and talk more about that, about the post commission itself. I'll just begin with the structure of the commission. There are nine commissioners. Three of them are, are police officers. Six are civilians. Uh, three were appointed by the governor, three by the attorney general, three by the two of them combined. And by statute, there are a number of statutory provisions that provide for there to be a diversity in that 
body of nine in terms of gender, race, geography, party affiliation, professional background, and, and who nominates them, which entities. Uh, it also provides, the legislation provides for an executive director and a staff. Uh, the commission needs to hold public meetings and does. We're subject to the open meeting law. And interestingly, the, the legislation provided that there can be, that among that group of civilian commissioners and the executive director and the, the principal enforcement unit of the, con, the commission, there can be no individuals who have ever been employed uh, by a law enforcement agency. Uh, the legislature gave the, the, the commission broad powers. They said all powers necessary, convenient, uh, including but not limited to a whole list of things. A lot of them are powers that are given to agencies generally, but a lot of them are things that are not given to every agency. So the ability to compel certain actions by officers and law enforcement agencies and to demand records and testimony and assess fines and fees and uh, remove officers from law enforcement. And a lot of those powers I'll, I'll be elaborating on as I, as I continue to talk, but just to give you a sense of where we stand in that process of building the agency, right now we have six divisions, 29 employees, all under an executive director. Uh, the commission has held 36 public meetings, continues to expand its infrastructure. Uh, we've developed a series of regulations and policies and there are more coming. And there's really, I can say this very sincerely, there has been a very high degree of collaboration uh, and res mutual respect within the commission uh, and among its commissioners and within the staff and with this sister agency that I mentioned, the, the MPTC. Now, looking at the, the broad areas of our responsibility, one, it deals with certifying officers and agencies. The legislation provides that we and the MPTC have to establish certification requirements, uh, including some that are specified in the statute. And that certification is required for someone to be appointed or employed as a law enforcement officer. And the legislation essentially gave presently serving officers some initial staggered terms, but it set out a, a series of requirements for officer certification related to age and education and training and physical and psychological fitness and their backgrounds and passage of an examination and first aid and CPR certifications. And there needs to be an oral interview and they need to be found to have good moral character and fitness for employment. They could not have been ever convicted of a felony. They cannot have been listed in a national decertification database. And it cannot be the case that they have ever, that while previously employed in law enforcement, they would have been decertified. Uh, the, the legislation also provides for us to, uh, and it's embodied as far as the, the provisions related to the post commission, those are embodied in chapter 6E of the general laws. They provide for us to issue a, issue a specialized certification for the school resource officers that I mentioned a minute ago. Um, and the, the legislation provides that in order to be appointed as a school resource officer, somebody has to have that certification. We're also charged with certifying law enforcement agencies uh, working with the MPTC and in eight, at least eight areas, use of force, code of conduct, response procedures, criminal investigation procedures, juvenile operations, internal affairs, detainee transportation, and collecting and preserving evidence. And when I say in those areas, what I mean is that the certification needs to provide for agencies to have policies in all of those areas at the very least. So where things stand in that department, well, we've developed regulations and protocols and advisories concerning the officer certification process. We've been working closely with supervisors in agencies and listing their help, designing our own technology systems, uh, providing for opportunities for officers to obtain review when they get 
adverse decisions. And so as of uh, early this month, we've uh, initially certified or recertified about 9,400 officers. Uh, 230 officers are certified with a condition attached. Hundreds have not been certified. And we're now moving on to the, the second group that the legislature uh, has provided for us to, to recertify in this staggered term system. And we're developing these uh, ag agency certification regulations. Um, just another large area of our responsibility is in enforcement and disciplinary actions. And uh, there are certain forms of conduct that are that feature especially prominently in the statute, criminal conduct, uh, conduct leading to injury or death, using or failing to report excessive force, uh, bias, uh, conduct involving bias, I should say, forms involving dishonesty. Those are all things that, that are particularly uh, highlighted in, in the legislation. But when it comes to uh, any form of misconduct that the statute addresses, uh, it can be, depending on the circumstances, it could lead to suspension of an officer certification, uh, an officer being ordered to undergo retraining or to be decertified. We could also refer uh, cases to uh, civil or enforcement agencies for them to take action. And as I mentioned, there's even the possibility of assessing fines or, or penalties. Um, normally, that's the procedures start with at the agency level with not meaning local law enforcement agencies with their own investigation and reporting to us. And then our ability to, to examine things further, even to issue subpoenas and to conduct a, a confidential preliminary inquiry before things go on to, to a hearing for them to commissioners to decide. Uh, I just wanna highlight the, the consequences of decertification, which I've, is something I've, I've mentioned because they're really very, very, um, severe and and it's supposed to work that way uh, the statute provides that where an individual is decertified they've had their their certification revoked after a hearing normally they that they will be barred from applying for training or certification or from working for a law enforcement agency or a sheriff's office or eops in any capacity that they have to be reported to a, a national database and we have to work with other jurisdictions to make sure they're not hired there uh, we have to publish the decertification order and enter the information in a public-facing database. They can't challenge the decision with the Civil Service Commission or any uh, employment consequences resulting from that, and they have increased exposure to civil liability. So where we are with that is we've promulgated regulations, taken in complaints, suspended the certification of about 24 officers. Uh, if you look at our agendas, you'll see a long list of preliminary inquiry matters that were placed before the commission. I can't, because they're confidential, I can't talk about how that came out, but you can see from our agendas that there are a number of uh, matters placed before the commission and further uh, matters are expected. I'll just, I'll just, I uh, see I'm getting tight on time, but I'll just touch quickly on a couple of other areas. Another area of our responsibility is collecting, analyzing and disseminating information such as disciplinary records, complaints, investigative reports, training information, um, uses of force, entering information in an internal database, making it available to the public through a public-facing database. We're also expected to analyze this information looking for patterns. And as I said, publishing information on our website. Um, so that those are things that, that we've been doing. And um, we are look forward to continuing to expand our operations in that area through um, a public-facing database, 
and enhanced collection of information on uses of force, for example. Um, then I guess the last big area is the regulation and oversight of day-to-day -day activity by officers and agencies. And there, the statute is a lot less specific. Uh, it has a lot of specific specificity when it comes to use of force. Um, it gives us some powers to make sure that officers are completing in-service training, gives us the power to oversee their record keeping through auditing. But other than that, there's not a lot of specificity. And so we've begun talking ourselves about how, in what ways, our agency should be regulating the day-to-day -day conduct of officers, not just how they come into the profession and how they um, how they go out of the profession. Uh, we've been addressing those other areas uh, through regulations and policies and administrative suspensions. But but as I say, we we are also uh, not only talking ourselves, but interested in hearing any thoughts that anyone else has about ways that the law enforcement profession should be regulated on a day-to-day -day basis. So um, I hope that that's been informative um, and um, I can uh, answer any questions if and when the time is right. Thank you so much for that, Randy. That robust overview of just all of the mechanisms and the ways in which accountability measures are being created and enforced in Massachusetts is just, it's amazing to hear. For those of you who are advocates in this space, you may know that there was a long, a long, long um, period of advocacy for a certification, decertification process in Massachusetts. We were one of the last states in the country to create some sort of mechanism like this. So to just hear how in-depth the post agency is in all of these places that advocates are really excited to see the work done, um, this, is, this is a real treat and reward for us. So this is great to hear. And I think what Randy has sort of given us some insight into is sort of that external lever that we can utilize when we think about um, accountability and reform. But Natasha, I'd love for you to talk a little bit more sort of in-house and then please add to any other mechanisms that you think would be helpful here. But, you know, tell us a little bit about sort of not just conduct, but kind of rule investigations, rule breaking uh, investigations through internal affairs and other mechanisms they have to ensure accountability measures um, when we think about police reform. Thanks, Sophia. Um, so the internal affairs function within uh, police departments, um, I think it's just it's one tool, as you said in the in the opening, right? There are a lot of tools in the, the tool belt or in the toolbox, and the internal affairs function is is just one. And depending on who you ask, it, it may be sort of the, the least effective amongst them, or uh, uh, you know, depending on the who's who's answering the question. So they they generally function, you know, the in the same way across departments, right? You have a few officers who are um, tasked with receiving and reviewing uh, internal, uh, internal, internally generated complaints, whether there's be, there might be something that a supervisor reports of a subordinate as well as external complaints. And they conduct investigations of varying degrees of quality, depth, uh, and thoroughness. And so I think it, you know, the, the ability for a police department to police its own, to investigate its own, I think is an important function for a police department to have. And I know that there are a lot of uh, external um, mechanisms that are in place that I think are helpful, the post commission, uh, civilian oversight. I'll talk a little bit about each of those. But you know, I, I may be sort of an outlier here in that having reviewed a lot of investigations, uh, conducted investigations, both as an internal affairs officer uh, back in, you know, back in the days when I was in the police department, but also reviewing them externally, both in the Boston police and uh, and otherwise. 
Um, I think that the the idea that you remove that responsibility from the police department is not necessarily a sound one. It may be rooted in sort of real concerns about the thoroughness and sort of the um, the diligence by which investigations are conducted uh, by police departments. But I I sometimes feel as if removing the responsibility almost takes departments off the hook for having to hold their own officers accountable. And so I, you know, I think that it's an important, it's, you know, I think they owe it to their communities uh, to be able to fulfill that function. And there should be external um, mechanisms, whether it be civilian oversight or through a post commission or whatever it is that oversee and audit the ability to, to, to perform the function well. But just to say that, well, police department A, you can't be relied upon to uh, to investigate your own or you don't conduct good investigation. So now you don't have to is, you know, I, you know, I don't feel is necessarily the, um, the consequence that um, that that should um, be visited upon a department who fails to fulfill that function. And so when you look at sort of the things outside of the department, I, and I should say, you know, uh, police internal affairs, it's a very difficult job to be. And I, I, I ask everyone, think about your own uh, your colleagues, your own uh, workspace, if you were the person who was responsible for uh, reviewing complaints against your colleagues, uh, some of your former friends, um, you know, people who you've known for a long time, and you walk in with your own preconceived notions and ideas about those people that make it difficult to sort of put that aside and conduct an investigation of potential misconduct, it makes it, you know, it can be an isolating uh, job within a department to be an internal affairs officer because you know nobody you know you you don't have many friends you know after after you're done with a particular investigation so it's not a great place to be and it's a it's a really um, tremendous responsibility but you know it's one that should be taken seriously and it's one that is a, a, a core function within police departments and so what you find in police departments is that you have really low sustained rates um, of uh, of external complaints in particular. So there's supposed to be sort of a preponderance of the evidence standard, right? It's, you know, if it's 5149, then the complaint is sustained. And, you know, and quite frankly, uh, a lot of departments rely upon sort of the, it's, well, it's his word against the uh, the officer's word. So we can't really tell, you know, so it's 50-50, so it's not sustained. Without sort of, you know, uh, if we adopted that same approach to murder investigations or anything else and have the same kind of sustain rate or low sustain rate, uh, a community wouldn't stand for sort of a police department that couldn't solve anything because they never made sort of, you know, credibility determinations or, or dug beneath sort of people's statements or, uh, or taking people's statements at face value. So I do think that there's sort of, you know, a need for training or quite frankly, just the courage to sort of look beyond sort of the he said, he said, and sort of, and to make a finding because there, you know, it, a lot of times there is an ability to uh, to tip the scales one way or the other, but uh, uh, some investigators just don't do it for the reasons uh, that I mentioned before. So then you have these sort of other, these external mechanisms that I think can enhance the internal, internal, the internal police accountability uh, function and system uh, rather than sort of replacing it outright. So at the, the community level, uh, you have sort of various civilian oversight mechanisms and structures, and some are um, set up just as uh, in an auditing function. So they would review uh, completed internal investigations and sort of do an after, um, after investigation review of the fairness or the thoroughness of the investigation, maybe review 
interview tapes or review reports uh, without sort of interviewing individual officers and without in, uh, reviewing complainants and really just reporting out on the quality of investigations after the fact. And those are sort of, you know, standing alone are not sort of the contemporaneous sort of, um, you know, the that um, are going to result in sort of instant um, change or uh, movement and improving improvement of the quality of investigations. Ideally, you have a civilian oversight if it is in that in that model that has sort of a good working relationship with the police um, uh, command structure so that um, feedback and uh, reviews of investigations are sort of heard and received in a thoughtful way and changes come uh, that way. And there could be some policy recommendations that come uh, in that. But that is much more of a sort of a um, it's a slower model. It's not going to sort of result in sort of instant things because there's, there is just sort of this, the investigation and review process takes time. And the other thing about police internal affairs investigations, they really take a lot of time to complete sometimes for good reasons, but sometimes because uh, officers leave or things get put on a shelf and not picked up again. And there's just delays that are built in. So sometimes it's just due to neglect. Um, so, you know, built into, you know, so those are more delays than um, than the community would certainly like and that are, are really um, that aren't excusable in a lot of ways because justice delayed is, is justice denied. If you're a complainant uh, who's waiting two years for someone to review and investigate and complete an investigation, you've lost all faith in sort of in the in the department to uh, to fully receive and hear your uh, your complaint. And then some civilian oversight models have their own investigators. Some have uh, are reviewing investigations that are conducted by the police department, but reviewing it at the same time so that they're able to either uh, ask the police investigator to go back and interview a, 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 a witness or to review some uh, camera footage or to look for some other lead in some other way and are involved in the findings process and making recommendations about whether something should be sustained or not sustained. There sort of is the, 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 the question of whether civilian uh, review boards should have subpoena power, be able to you know, bring officers in to ask them questions, or if they should be able to um, deploy their own investigators either all the time for every complaint or in special circumstances. And those are things that sort of you know, get, get worked out um, between police departments and communities, I've seen it sort of uh, in in in, um, in in all iterations. I could say that the the models where the uh, the oversight board, the community oversight board, has subpoena power or other investigatory power. You you know, depending on the the collective bargaining units in a particular police department, those can be really uh, really difficult to get those up and running and to get them actually working because uh, the union. Um, uh, the, the um, I guess, the resistance to that kind of model it can be pretty strong and it can be really hard. Uh, and so the police department or a city will have to decide whether it's it's worth it to try to get all of that in, or whether it's, you know, if there's a compromise model that will at least get uh, some community-based function uh, in the accountability process. And so then finally, we have things like government oversight and the post commission here in Massachusetts, which I think are all... Um, you know, bring a layer of uh, standardization. Uh, I think that they're really important because they look not just at individuals, but as systems, you know, and um, as Sophia, as you mentioned in your opening, 
you know, there are a lot of systemic sort of cultural issues within policing that if you're just looking at a department or looking at individual officers, you might miss the trees for just, or miss the forest. I guess, I guess I've got it backwards where you're concentrating on individual trees. So if you're looking at just how officer A uh, is, you know, conducting the use of force or doing traffic stops, you're missing sort of the cultural piece that, um, well, where did Officer A sort of learn that? What was sort of, what did the department itself reward in terms of stops made and traffic stops and arrests? What sort of is the culture of the department that has contributed to uh, Officer A's conduct? And so by just focusing on this one officer, you're missing, you know, all the systemic issues. And I think that the post commission and other sort of government oversight mechanisms, I know Michelle is going to talk about pattern and practice investigations, and Amanda will talk about it as well. Here in Massachusetts, those things are looking at sort of structural deficiencies and things that police departments can do more broadly uh, to bring um, uh, fulsome accountability measures uh, in-house. And so I think all of these things um, work in conjunction with one another. I think, you know, we need to do a better job of getting all of the different, you know, so that we're not sort of, you know, that they're working in concert a little bit better than they do now, because I think they're, they are siloed in a lot of ways, but I, I'm hoping that with, you know, as the post commission gets going and as uh, things sort of, you know, start to uh, work here in the state, that it becomes more of a collaborative process and that we're all sort of working towards the same end. Yeah, thank you for that, Natasha. I mean, really excellent comments. So what I always appreciate about, um, hearing your expertise and remarks is just how candid it is and how global the the remarks are in terms of sort of both sides of the V. We'll say that as the lawyers here in the room, right? Um, because there, there are no perfect solutions. And I think your perspective really allows us to see both law enforcement community-based um, goals and barriers to, you know, to all of these tricks that we have up our, our sleeve that we're trying to utilize. And that's that's a really important component in this conversation because Again, this, this is a complex issue, right? There isn't an easy fix. And it is because it's not just about standardizing the approach and um, ensuring that there are enough decision makers who are unbiased to be able to get us in the right direction. But it's also about bringing over a community who has lost trust, um, who really is engaging in mistrust sometimes with law enforcement and the mechanisms that are supposed to be there to uh, create accountability. So, you know, you're thinking both outwardly and internally constantly when, when thinking about the different models. And I think, you know, just generally speaking, Natasha, your comments give us a really good insight in terms of how complex that can be. So, you know, let's shift a little bit to saying, you know, we have the complaint, we have the evidence of sort of a global or a systemic, um, type of misconduct within within a law enforcement agency. Let's talk about as lawyers, you know, there's a lot of enforcement power on this panel. What's what's the tools of the trade in terms of how we tackle that? And let's start, um, you know, Randall hinted on this a little bit. Our very global uh, police reform legislation has given us some new tools in our tool belt and the enforcement side of things too, particularly thinking about civil rights violations and ways that we can deal with pattern and practice violations and has given new powers to our attorney general's office. And Amanda, we'd love to hear more about how that's playing out, sort of, you know, what are the parameters and and um, and what does it look like for your office as you're slowly thinking about how to do this work, how to take up the call? Yeah, sure. Um, thanks, Sophia. So, you know, historically, the attorney general's office has operated in sort of a limited, uh, odd 
place when it comes to police accountability and addressing police misconduct. Historically, our work was focused on matters that fit within the Massachusetts Civil Rights Act, which is our color of law statute in Massachusetts that prohibits interference with protected rights through threats, intimidation, or coercion, um, which is a relatively hard standard to meet in the law enforcement context, or matters that rose to the level of criminal prosecution. So historically on the civil rights side, we've done a smattering of work over the years, starting with a report into the Boston Police Department stop and frisk practices under A.G. Shannon many, many years ago, uh, and a case called Commonwealth versus Adams, which likewise involved um, conduct by Boston police officers in the 90s. It's led to be sort of the seminal piece on the application of the Massachusetts Civil Rights Act in the law enforcement context. Um, through most recently our report into the Bristol County Sheriff's Office response to a, an incident um, there on an immigration detention unit. On the criminal side, you know, our work has ranged from prosecuting um, overtime abuse scandals um, to excessive uses of force. Um, but we really felt like, you know, we we had an important, have an important role to, to play here. We know that for the reasons Natasha mentioned, internal affairs is not always um, a meaningful accountability system. We know that doctrines like qualified immunity limit the availability of accountability to private litigants. And we know that the Department of Justice um, can't be everywhere with their, with their national scope. Um, so we, we felt like, you know, we're an office that is somewhat uniquely situated in terms of our legal profile, our ability to embed in communities and, and, and engage in community-informed legal advocacy, and then the passion, enthusiasm, and skill of our lawyers in the office who are really committed to doing this work. So in 2020, in connection with the police reform law, we advocated for pattern or practice authority, uh, which we received, and that authority... Um, what we got is the ability to investigate patterns or practices of racially biased policing and to address those practices in court through injunctive or declaratory relief. Um, so th this is new for us. Um, we've, we've started um, building up a practice in the office. We have lawyers, two of whom, uh, Hella Saxa and David Rang Rangaviz are, are listening uh, in today. So I want I want to give them a shout out because they've really been um, leading our work here and building up this practice. Um, and we are under AG Campbell formalizing that work, building that work and growing that work in what we're calling a police accountability unit, um, which will be embedded within our civil rights division. We actually just posted for a director to lead that unit last week. So if you're interested, um, please do take a look at that posting and apply. Um, so that unit really is gonna be focused on leveraging our pattern or practice authority. We view this authority as complementary to, but distinct from what the post commission is doing. Post-focus, as you heard, is really on individual officer conduct redressed through the remedy of certification or decertification in inappropriate cases, while also monitoring for patterns uh, that may exist across departments. But our focus is really sort of, by contrast, on systemic issues uh, redressed through appropriate equitable relief um, that is, you know, geared towards achieving institutional reform either across a department or um, focused on a, you know, on a, on a section of a department like a, a gang unit or a narcotics unit or a school resource officer unit. Um, so we're really excited about this. Um, we're embarking upon it, we're learning, um, we're developing some significant capacity, we're investing in this work. Um, we think, um, you know, we're, we're a little bit different <laughs> situated from the Department of Justice, so you'll hear from Michelle in a moment. Um, so our investigations may be scoped differently, our 
we will never have um, comparable resources to the Department of Justice, but we think that um, we are going to be able to achieve some really significant um, results through through this through this practice. Um, as part of this work, we also are making a significant investment in community relationships and building strong models for partnering um, with law enforcement in a in a preventative way. On the community engagement side, I, mean, I think it's just essential to have good community relationships to do meaningful police uh, accountability work. So we are, you know, we we know that we are a law enforcement uh, agency in Massachusetts. We're not always a natural fit in certain communities, but so we are uh, really intentionally trying to be in communities and develop strong pipelines um, around these issues so that we become a trusted partner um, in communities in terms of responding to police practices. And likewise, on the law enforcement side, you know, we recognize that um, police do have a very difficult job to do, um, a job that is complicated by the prevalence of illegal guns, a job that is complicated by substance use disorder and mental health issues, um, public health problems that um, that have, uh, for one reason or another, become treated as public safety problems. And so we've heard from law enforcement partners that they are excited about our police accountability work and our pattern of practice work um, and, and hoping that we can work together with them and with POST and with the Department of Justice to provide technical assistance and other supports so that um, we don't encounter them in an enforcement posture. Um, but where conduct rises to a certain level, um, we can, we will, and we have begun to do that, that work and we are excited to continue to do so. Thank you, Amanda. And we're certainly excited to see A.G. Campbell taking on these issues. Um, sort of a, a new day when we think about how we ally with the Attorney General's office in this particular space. Um, so, Michelle, Amanda gave us a little preview here, but help us understand um, more generally, you know, how the DOJ engages in these systemic issues, how you how you issue spot, how you how you choose the the matter that you take on for representation or, or take on for enforcement, and then um, maybe give us some examples. Sure. Um, so yeah, just for some context, um, at the U.S. Attorney's Office, I'm in the Civil Rights Unit and have tended to focus on um, police misconduct matters. Um, and in part, that's because of my experience previously in D.C., where I worked on police misconduct matters around the country. Um, and we investigate similar to the statute that Amanda just talked about, patterns or practices of unconstitutional conduct. So we're looking at departments that may have systemic issues and are, and are not focused on individual instances of um, misconduct. And, and to tackle that first piece of your question um, and about how we identify cases, we really stay on top of monitoring lots of sources of um, public information. So, and now that you know, I'm based in Massachusetts, I'll just be focused on looking at things in Massachusetts. So we're looking at news articles that might pop um, up. We're looking at publicly filed lawsuits um, that give sometimes an indication of what's going on. And folks, of course, also reach out to our office um, to make complaints. And, and while we, again, don't have authority to, to respond or to represent folks in those individual complaints, we can keep track of those complaints and sort of get a sense if there seems to be um, repeat issues. Um, equally important is sort of the, the relationships we build with community advocacy organizations who can sometimes bring to light those individual complaints from individual community members who might not think to reach out to the U.S. Attorney's Office um, with concerns. Um, so there's no magic formula in terms of how we decide whether or not to open an investigation, but we'll weigh the nature and seriousness of the allegations, how many of the allegations there are, 
um, the steps the department might be taking to address those allegations and sort of um, whether or not there seems to be a history of, of concerns that um, date back some time. Um, in terms of how we approach investigations, um, we primarily do two things. Um, in broad strokes, we look at documents and we talk to people. Um, so in terms of the documents, we look at all sorts of department documents, policies, incident reports, data, use of force reports, IA, files, et cetera. Um, and in terms of people we talk to, we'll talk with people at a department from patrol officers all the way up to, um, to the chief of a department. Um, and again, not to suss out um, individual officer liability, but to really learn about how systems and processes work in practice off you know, the, the paper and the policies. Um, and we also engage with as many community members um, and advocates as possible um, who have had firsthand experiences, both positive and negative with the department. Um, and in all of this work, we are assisted by police practices consultants um, like Natasha, who help us decipher and analyze documents and, and suss out the, the information we really need to focus on. Um, in Massachusetts, we um, conducted an investigation of the Springfield Police Department's Narcotics Bureau. Um, and in that investigation, we were focused on, on one unit within the department and we were looking at issues of unreasonable force. Um, and in 2020, we entered a consent decree, which Natasha and I will talk a little bit more about. Um, and we are now working cooperatively with the department to, to implement reforms. Um, We've also publicly announced an investigation of the Worcester Police Department where we're looking at issues of force and uh, race and sex bias. Um, because that's an ongoing investigation, it's um, harder to talk about details, but um, there are now you know, two investigations in the District of Massachusetts and we're one of the few states that's had um, multiple federal investigations. Um, so at the conclusion of an investigation, if we decide that there is a pattern or practice of unconstitutional conduct, we'll draft what's called a findings report. Um, and this is something that folks may, may see, have seen in, in high profile police investigations around the country, but this is what details DOJ's investigative steps and conclusion. And it's, and it's really meant to try to be our way to be transparent with both the department and the public about, you know, sometimes a very lengthy investigation in which people felt like they, you know, sometimes feel like they don't know what DOJ is doing. Um, and following the issuance of a, a findings report, we can either litigate or enter a settlement agreement. And we by and large find that departments really want to do the right thing and um, do engage in um, negotiations with us to enter agreements. And, and that kicks off um, a, a process of, of implementing um, reform. So that's I was I was going fast because I was looking at the clock and I noticed that we were tight on time and there's much more to talk about. Um, so that's really DOJ's work at a, a high level. Um, and I think it's great that we DOJ are just sort of one piece of this whole reform picture in Massachusetts. And there's so many different partner agencies that that help um, get at this issue in, in different ways. Yeah, that's great, Michelle. And for those that were not aware of um, the investigation in Worcester, but also the big matter in Springfield, I think, you know, it's really important to just know that we do have good advocates here in Massachusetts, really critically looking at these issues. I mean, this is in some ways the place to be um, in terms of thinking through having thought partners from both a government and a private side when we think through reform. Um, 
So you you started to bring up this notion of a consent decree um, sort of at the end of one of your pattern and practice matters. Natasha, can you give us a sense of what a consent decree is and tell us a little bit about monitoring? I can try, although I think Michelle would probably do it better. Um, so the, the consent decree is, uh, I guess, for lack of a better term, the settlement agreement between the Department of Justice and the uh, the city or town that's being investigated. And it, it contains a series of provisions that are, um, these are the reforms that uh, the department needs to implement in, uh, um, to be out of the consent decree, to sort of uh, complete the, the mission of the settlement agreement. And usually baked within that is the selection and the appointment of a, of a monitor, an independent monitor, to sort of track and, um, um, and report back to the court, because these are filed in federal court, report back to the court to static uh, implementation. And so I am currently serving as the monitor for the Ferguson, Missouri uh, consent decree, uh, and was not sort of the, the first monitor there. I came in uh, and replaced the first monitor. So Michelle can speak to sort of the selection process and how uh, monitors are usually selected. But I've been the monitor there, the lead monitor, for about four years now, I think. And um, usually, you know, the day-to-day -day is, you know, you've got a team of subject matter consultants, of experts who um, work with the community, with the city, uh, on implementing the various um, portions of the consent decree. So there might be a subject matter consultant for use of force and one for internal investigations. Uh, and so you sort of break up the one for community engagement. So you break up the work in that way uh, so that each is reviewing policies and training in their uh, particular subject area that the police department is uh, is working on. And I think, you know, the, just the, you know, in thinking about the consent decrees, I, I've also been a part of a consent decree monitoring team in Newark, New Jersey, and I was the, the lead consultant for internal investigations. And I can say that the, the Newark, New Jersey consent decree, Newark has about a thousand police officers. Uh, Ferguson has about 40 or 50. On a good day, they have 50. Um, but their consent decrees are just about the same size. In fact, Ferguson's is a little longer because Ferguson has a municipal court component because part of the Department of Justice findings were related to fines and fees uh, and, and the administration of uh, the municipal court in Ferguson. So Ferguson's consent decree is longer than uh, Newark's, but they have you know a fraction of the number of people who are in place to sort of implement things. And so I think the you know the progress, you know, they the consent decrees, they sort of say uh, within five years, you know, if it's not completed, uh, it can be renewed by the court or uh, can be extended by the court. Uh, I don't know of any that has ended within five years. Maybe Michelle does, uh, but you know we're you know hope springs eternal that one of these will will close out uh, within the, the five years. But it is sort of a it's a long process because there are serious reforms and serious things that uh, need to be implemented, and it's across the department. It can have it can uh, if, you know data systems are outdated as they usually are. I mean you know many of these departments have not only capacity issues in terms of staffing or the um, the internal expertise to get things done, but there are real resource issues um, that are that uh, are part of this as well. So the process is one that requires patience by everyone and uh, and good collaboration, healthy collaboration, not only between the Department of Justice and the city, as Michelle alluded to, but with the the monitor and the parties and the community, because you know you have to get that buy-in, you have to try as best you can to keep the community involved in the process. 
even though they may not necessarily have been at the negotiating table at the start of, uh, and, and may have built a consent decree that included other things that are not necessarily within it. Michelle, can you can you build on that a little bit for us um, in terms of your experience with monitoring? The sound wasn't working, but I think you're passing the baton to me. <laughs> I am. Apologies for that. <laughs> um, um, and, and just to piggyback on what Natasha said, it, a consent decree is essentially a fancy word for saying a court-ordered settlement agreement. So the real power of having a consent decree is that instead of having, you know, a, an agreement that's just essentially a contract between two parties, you've got the weight of the federal government ensuring that the parties are implementing the changes and and holding everyone's feet to the fire and holding all parties accountable, essentially to the public. So um, it, it's a it's a powerful reform tool. Um, that said, there have been critiques about how lengthy the process can be and how expensive the process can be. Um, and in recent years, DOJ has tried to implement some, some tangible changes to improve uh, on that process. And I'll, I'll highlight just a couple of them in the interest of time. Um, but one is, um, one sort of bucket of changes is really focused on how to minimize costs. Um, so now when we craft these consent decrees, we really think about um, capping monitors fees within the agreement itself or exploring flat fee arrangements. Um, so for example, you know, there's a, a flat fee arrangement and budget for our Springfield Police Department monitor. Um, and she she works with a lean team of just three folks, really two folks who are most actively engaged in the day-to-day. -day. Um, and she recently thought to bring on a team member who could help with more day-to-day -day technical assistance, um, but it's not increasing the fee structure for the city, which is great. It's a, it, it, so everyone has some, um, some predictability up front. Um, and another second big bucket of changes DOJ has tried to implement is um, around transparency and encouraging transparency around the process. Um, so, for example, in the monitor selection process, the parties used to sort of just, you know, solicit applications, interview folks and try to select a monitor jointly. Um, but now, you know, we've realized that the monitor is someone who really will interact with the public a lot, um, engage with the public. And we've tried to work out ways that the community can be involved in the selection process. So in Springfield, um, the public had um, access to the two finalists' application materials. Uh, we hosted a public Zoom forum where um, the public submitted interview questions ahead of time and the monitoring teams answered questions for the public. And there was a, a comment period after that session where community members could, could let us know, you know who their preferred candidate was. Um, and so that's been, I think, helpful in terms of building that, that trust and relationship with the monitoring team, but also with the process. Um, and, and I think the third big way, another third bucket we've tried to um, make changes on with respect to the monitoring process is, is thinking about the end, always being cognizant of the end. Um, so now there, we try to write into agreements a mandatory sort of hearing to assess whether or not the agreement can be terminated. Um, in some ways, this isn't a change. DOJ agreements have always allowed for a jurisdiction to move to terminate an agreement at any time they wish, but now there's sort of a set time, you know, at around a four or five year mark where the court, you know, hears from both parties about um, whether or not the agreement should end. Um, and to, to that goal, 
in furtherance of that goal, we are also trying to always develop internal assessment and auditing capabilities within the department so that everyone has confidence that the department can internally manage itself um, and, you know, conduct the same analysis the monitoring team was so that when DOJ and the monitoring team leave, the department can still engage in, in those analyses and also continue to issue public reports um, to create that transparency with the public. Um, so that, you know, there, there's always a lot, you know, we're always very cognizant of ways we can be doing our work better. And those are some of the ways we're trying to, to reform the, the DOJ reform process. That's great. That's really, it's really informative. Um, I know that we are running short on time. We did have one question, um, but it's sort of been covered a bit in our, in the remarks. So I want to just throw out one quick question and maybe Amanda and Randy, you could give me an answer to this. You know, there's a lot still here that we haven't been able to cover today. Can you share with us one additional reform mechanism that either is on the horizon or that you think maybe should be on the horizon in terms of Massachusetts? Yeah, I, I'm happy. I'm happy to uh, to jump in. I think um, you know this is. I, I there's sort of two that come to mind for uh, for for me. One um, is that while we have one is a self interested one. While we have pattern or practice authority, um, we don't have much in the way of compulsory tools that go with that authority. And so, um, so you know, so far we've been able to. Um, pursue those investigations with voluntary cooperation, which is which is great, and I think we have no reason to expect that that um, that won't continue to be the case down the road. But um, but we we don't actually have um, we have the authority, but we don't we don't have um, many tools uh, to go with that that authority. So that's one, and the other is just I think data and transparency are are just really important, and I think everything that we can do to maximize um, the collection of accurate data, making that data available to the public. Um, particularly around internal affairs um, and and other metrics too, I think is is really um, really really important. Yeah, thank you for that, Amanda. Um, Randy, with our last minute here, anything else you want to share with us on reforms? Well, just just one thing is that it's very reassuring that there seems to be a lot of collaboration and cooperation among different entities, different uh, agencies. Uh, you know, as I as I listen to uh, Amanda, talk. I'm, I'm thinking, you know, some of the uh, the efforts that uh, the new AG is making, um, and and just how promising things look in terms of um, our ability to to work with that agency and exchange ideas um, and rely on each other to to make some real progress in this area. And I think that that's true for um, you know a lot of other agencies as well. Um, and, and, you know, I, I really think that there's, we have a lot of good things to look forward to in the way that we all work together on this. That's awesome. Uh, well, we are right at the top of the hour. I'm sure we could have talked for another hour about all of the work you guys are doing and the deep bench that you bring to this issue. Um, but time is at the end here. So I just want to say thank you to all of our panelists. This has been a really interesting and insightful conversation. For again, for people who are interested in police reform measures, there's a lot more here to talk about, to look into. Um, and we certainly encourage people to reach out if you have any additional questions or want to learn more. So thank you everybody for your time and especially to the panelists. Thank you so much for sharing with us.